Hi everyone and welcome to the Changing Tides podcast. In each episode, we invite guests to have honest conversations about their mental health journeys with the goal of destigmatizing mental health within the Asian American Pacific Islander community. Due to the nature of the podcast, we'll be discussing a variety of mental health topics and possibly triggering experiences. While we and the majority of our guests are not trained professionals, we encourage you to practice self-care while listening and seek professional guidance if you or a loved one is in need of support. With that said, let's start the episode. Hi there, my name is Timothy Lacas, and I would describe my mental health journey as a fight. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Changing Tides podcast. I am your host, Matthew Yonamura. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us in this episode today. Uh, I just did the interview a little bit ago, and as always, it was an amazing guest, but I really loved to hear his story. And I always love to hear from the Asian American men that we have on the podcast, because as many of us know, and as I've touched on, and as other episodes have touched on, Asian American males are looked at as less masculine or immasculine and it's just really cool to hear from men about their perspectives on mental health and not be afraid of the stereotype of talking about mental health being a sign of weakness and actually discussing the strength in it. So this guest today was another great uh, example of that. He shares his story very honestly, on it very truthfully. And he also shares his own perspective on mental health in a way that isn't preachy or saying his way or the highway. You know, uh, I think it's, it's great to hear from, from folks and get their honest perspective about how this is what helped them. But hey, this is just what helped them. So I think when you listen, um, same with every episode that we have here, this is about individual stories and what works for them. Not necessarily, hey, you have to do this in order to see results in your mental health journey. Uh, So I just wanted to say that really quickly. Uh, And it's something that we say in the episode as well, is that this works for him. This worked for me. And we hope that maybe you pull bits and pieces from both of us. Uh, But again, I'm going to stop talking because this is a great interview. Uh, we were talking about it towards the end of the episode, but we're definitely going to need a part two. I ran out of time. I had another meeting to run to, so we couldn't finish hearing his full story. So I'm sure you'll see a part two very soon. But with all that said, I am so excited for you, here, for you to hear the episode that I just did with Timothy Lacoste. Timothy, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Uh, I got connected to you through Christine. And I heard a little bit about your journey, man, and I'm really excited to share on the podcast. I'm really glad you're open enough to share your story with us. So um, you described your mental health journey as a fight. Uh, I want to just start there and hear why you chose the word fight as your descriptor. Yeah, I, I, I chose the words uh, as a fight because um, I'm allowed to swear. I'm not going to lie. I've been through some shit. (laughs) Um, I've been through some shit in life and uh, I believe everyone's, you know, dealt a a hand of cards and, and some are better than others. Um, 
And, you know, I, I feel like I got a little bit of uh, a shittier hand dealt to me, but uh, the outcomes of, of it all actually turned out to be quite fruitful in my opinion. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, also I chose a fight because uh, with all the things that I've went through, I've, I've been through a lot of different type of uh, traumas and adversities in my life where you you come to a point where it's either fight or flight. And you know what? Nothing, nothing bad has ever came from being a fighter um, in this, in a sense uh, with uh, mental health. So um, yeah, that's, that's why I chose it. Yeah, man. I love to, I love to hear that. I think that's, you, you put that in a really great way. You were just talking about how you, you didn't really rehearse anything, but that sounded like a, a script, bro. Like that, you said that so well. So um yeah. So I, I, I know your journey started at a really young age, like this whole, this fight started at a young age, but I want to, before even getting to that, I want to know when you would say the mental health journey began, when were you aware of the mental health fight that you were dealing with? And um, like, when was, when were you aware of that being a part of your fight? It's a really good question. I believe I was, aware very very young um so i would probably say i think you know my mental health journey i mean i think it starts as, as anyone else starts so zero to seven years old you know that's your imprint years but the, the awareness didn't really come until probably uh, the end of my elementary towards like middle school years you know so uh, i think that's that's at a point in your life where you start to uh, as a as a child, especially in a school system, you're trying to fit in. You're trying to figure out where where you belong. You start to make friends and start creating bonds and relationships with other people outside of your nuclear household. That is your parents or your siblings. And so, um, when you're trying to navigate that as a child, I think you that's the awakening of of awareness, you know. And and you're trying to navigate that as a kid. So, like, I, I think, yeah. Uh, between between that and and just again just a lot of the stuff that I've been through in my life at a very very young age even almost since I was born, um, I've had this awareness about you know, I'm really different and you know I look around and like kids are really different from me or their family lives are really different um, or they don't have to go through certain things that I've had to go go through so all those things would pop up in my head as a, as a kid growing up. Mm -hmm. So. Now I want to, you know, give you the opportunity to share what you're comfortable with sharing um, because, you know, I talked with you a little bit on the phone prior to this, um, but I wanted to give you the chance to share with the listeners what you shared with me or whatever you're comfortable with sharing today and talk a little bit about, you know, your childhood and what the upbringing looked like that led up to this realization. Sure, sure. Yeah, so um, I'll just start all the way from the beginning. So. I I was born in Reno, Nevada. I'm a first generation Filipino American. Uh, my birth mother had me at 15 years old, and my birth father he was around, I believe, 17, um, and he was in a gang. Um, I actually have my four brothers and sisters. My younger brothers and sisters, I I have, I believe I have the most memories and some don't even have any recollection of our, our, what I call our past life. 
before we were adopted. So um, with my birth parents, after I was born, we moved to Las Vegas and we didn't really have a place to stay. Uh, we were homeless. We bounced around to different extended family members, household, or um, gosh, I, I had a memory when my birth father and myself and my two other siblings at the time, uh, we slept on an abandoned apartment and we slept on the floor. Um, so it, that, that start of life was, was a little rough. Not my birth parents, they both had a very toxic relationship um, and it was very unfortunate. My, my birth father was not, not a good guy in terms of being a partner. Uh, he was very abusive. And again, these are, these are the things that I'm seeing as a young child from the time I was born all the way up until I was five years old. Um, I saw a lot of things that most kids shouldn't have seen, um, shouldn't have witnessed, shouldn't have had to feel. So um, I'm not going to jump into too much detail because it can get really dark. But I will say that, again, my, my birth parents didn't have a, a great relationship at all. It was very, very controlling from my uh, father's side. And um, my birth mother, uh, uh, unfortunately, had to um, face a lot of struggle and trauma from that. So when I turned five years old at this point, um, my birth parents had four others. So I'm the oldest of five kids. I have two brothers and two sisters. And they basically put us up for adoption. And that's how I today actually have two white adopted parents. Um, now, I know I go by Timothy Lacasse. And that is a stage name that I go that I go by as like giving myself my own identity. Um, but my actual adopted name, I've, I always make a joke out of it because it's funny, but I have the whitest last name in the world. You know, and most people, whenever I, whenever I go approach people, I'm like, you can probably guess it. Everyone guesses, it, right? And they're like, I don't know, is it Smith? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and, then they, and then they don't believe me. So, you know, I'll pull up my ID. I'm like, it's actually Smith. So, um, you know, it's weird being a Filipino American walking around with the last name Smith. Right. But um, for the most part, I like to go under this, my own identity, a persona that I'm, that I'm creating here, something um, like us. It, it means a lot to me. So um, here I am and uh, with white parents and we got adopted in this small little white farm town in Pennsylvania. Um, and again, I don't mean that by any type of racist way, but it's more of just shedding light that the majority was, was white and the only minorities was my brothers and sisters and I, and then we had one or two other African-American kids in our school. Yeah, I faced a lot of adver adversity living at that, that, that small font town. I mean, just to just to paint the picture even more, 20 minutes away was the Amish. So for those mm. of you who don't know who the Amish is, it's like, you know, the horse and buggies and they don't believe in like modern technology and they try to survive on their own means and believe that a way of living through God is to, uh, you know, produce your own things. And um, that was 20 minutes away from the Amish. And then my neighboring town over, it was like six minutes away there's a KKK headquarters. Mm. So when I went, yeah. And then, you know, just cornfields surrounded by us farms and things like that. Um, so there at my small little farm town, you know, I faced a lot of adversity, a lot of racism. Um, and I'm not going to say that it was the majority of kids that I grew up with, but there was definitely a handful of kids, these small, 
these small town farm kids have never really been exposed to being interacting or interacting with other minorities or people of, of an ethnic background. Um, and also it became very apparent of um, generational small-minded ideas and thoughts that are passed on to their kids. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm being a kid and then uh, in, in this town where some didn't even know that I was Asian. I had no confidence. They just saw that I had uh, like darker skin and they would just call me the N-word. Mm. You know, and now on elementary school and, and middle school, they thought that, you know, that I was being called the N-word. And then once they figured out I was Asian, then came on like, you know, the Asian slurs. Right. You know, chink, goo, and and the, the harmful stereotypes of like, oh, you got like, oh, you're, you got a tiny dick and you must know math really well yeah. type of deal, you know? It's the really harmful stereotypes like that I grew up with. And, and it was really confusing for me because I'm like, no, I'm a nice kid. Like, right. right. Hey, why? Where's this hate coming from? Like, right. I remember that, that feeling, just feeling shame mm-hmm. and embarrassment. And I felt this inner boiling anger as well as, as a kid. Like, like, I wanted to fight, but I'm not. I was, I was like a tiny little kid, but I was like, I'm not going to fight them. I just kept my mouth shut and kept my head down. Um, but there was like this anger that brewed and it really turned into um, internalized racism. I hated being Asian. I hated being dark. I hated being, mm-hmm. I just wanted to blend in and be white. And I wanted to try to assimilate into white culture as much as I could. So that was one side. Like I'm talking more about like what it was like outside of my home. So out and about in, in school, things like that. Now, my nuclear household, meaning my parents and my brothers and sisters, this was a, a another big part of my life where I was experiencing a lot of different things. So um, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, I'll, I'll call them that for, for the time being here. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not very close to them today. I'm very cordial, but um, they didn't have a good relationship. They both lived in two different rooms in my house. Mm-hmm. Um, every day was fighting mm-hmm. between both of them. And unfortunately, my brothers and sisters and I were like the scapegoats for their frustrations and their relationships at work and things like that. So, mm-hmm. um, again, I'm not going to go into crazy detail with the stories because it can get really, really dark and heavy. But I will say that it was a very abusive emotionally, mentally and physically in the household. Mm-hmm. And it's very unfortunate that, you know, you take five kids off the street from one bad situation. and We kind of went into another bad situation. It's just kind of different. And I'm not going to say that every single moment was terrible because it wasn't. Um, I believe that they both, I believe they both tried uh, the best they could at their disposal, given their relationship and their they had lower financial means. So we we're definitely, uh, a, I would say, lower middle class. Um, they tried to raise five kids uh, in a household that was making under 100K. Mm. Um, so that caused a lot of tension in the relationship and it caused a lot of frustration trying to raise five kids and trying to provide for them. Um, and through a lot of, through a lot of abuse in that household that my brothers and sisters had to unfortunately endure, um, it made me very keenly aware that this isn't normal mm-hmm. when I went to school, when I saw my friends and their families and their parents and how they treated them. And they just knew I'm just like, we're not in a great situation. But as a child, like I'm, I'm having that awareness. I didn't really have much fight. Mm. I had no choice. 
you're young. Like, what am I going to do? I'm, I'm young. I'm like this. I'm like this, you know, whatever. I'm like a three, four foot kid. I think they did the best they could, but it wasn't great. It wasn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't a great. Um, and no, it also sucked hearing racism outside of my household enough, like in, in, um, in school, but mm-hmm. coming home, sometimes we face it inside our own household by my own parents. Mm-hmm. You know, um, right. my dad is from, my dad's from the deep South. I'm not trying to stereotype, but you know, when he, I, I remember something very traumatic when he, he called me the N word. Mm. And was, yeah, I was, I was appalled. Mm-hmm. I was appalled that I actually got from like my own father and all that. He's very much a changed man now. Mm-hmm. And so he got by the Lord and all that and became a born again Christian. I think he's on a better path now, but um, it doesn't change the fact that back then that was, it was, a very terrifying time for my brothers and sisters and I. Mm-hmm. Um, and you would think that through those experiences, it would bring your brothers and sisters and, and yourself together and you'd be there for each other. But that wasn't the case. We were never taught to be this loving type of family that said, I love you. And we were confessing each other's feelings to each other and, um, you know, giving each other hugs and all that stuff. It wasn't. It was a lot of screaming and yelling. We were the problem house in the block. People would walk outside and they would hear the, the screaming and yelling, things being mm. thrown, things broken, kids screaming in pain. Like it's, it's, it, it was a, a bad time there, you know? Um, but uh, it didn't make my brother and sister and I closer. It actually made us very hyper independent. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, what's shit, the. You know, Right. I mean, like you were talking about it earlier about the internalized racism and, you know, I'm sure the two situations that you were in with your adopted parents and, then, and also your birth parents, you know, I'm sure there's a level of blame, I would I would guess, like, not on yourself, but maybe on one another. Like, it, it's just hard to, when you're in those situations, I think, to like, see that everyone's your ally, especially when you're a young kid, right? Like, like, how are you supposed to understand that it's like, oh, we'd be stronger together. Like you're, you're not taught you, no one taught you that either. Right. So. No, exactly. We, we went like, uh, as soon as one of our, as soon as one of our asses got, got beat basically in the house or whatever, we would just retreat to our own corner of our room mm-hmm. and we it out. you try to process however, whatever means you had as a child. Um, you'd look for escapism, mm-hmm. whether it be a video games for me, it was drawing mm. uh, or writing, uh, and music, listening to music for my other bonus issue. It might've been anime. There's like, you know, there's a, there was a, it was just about trying to, it's exactly what your brain is, is wired to do. It's, a, it's about, um, creating pleasure and avoiding pain. Mm-hmm. So we didn't do that in a bonding way at all. And, and we carry that into our adulthood and even still today, my brothers and sisters and I, uh, it's only in the last several years, we just got closer as adults. Um, and we're forming, we're starting to form like of a, uh, more of a bond together. Now that we're all very conscious, we're very understanding of how we grew up. Um, so I am very happy that we have this kind of foundation we're trying to rebuild or build again mm-hmm. uh, as adults. 
That's awesome. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so I want to, I want to get into that. And I think, I mean, there's so much to ask you about from, from this, but I think I want to kind of follow up later, but I, I guess at what point, because I mean, just hearing you talk, I could tell there's been healing there, but what at what point did it, things start to take a turn? When did you start to see, like, how did you get out of the situation, I guess? How was there room for you to be able to find improvement? Yeah, I, um, when you're in an environment like that, as a, as a child, when you're stuck in a, in a house where it's just traumatic. It's just trauma every day. It's fighting, screaming, yelling. It's, it's just uncomfortability. Um, as a, as a child, you, you can't go anywhere, but you know, it wasn't until I, it wasn't until I graduated high school that I looked for a true escape. Mm-hmm. This is true for all my brothers and sisters. Once we all turn into adults, one by one, we left um, and try to find our own way out in the real world. And so I'm going to fast forward here to when I was a senior in high school. And unfortunately, I had lost one of my really, really good friends. It was one of my best friends, really. Uh, one of the first friends I ever made when I first got adopted. Um, and I, this kid, I wanted, like, I wanted to emulate him so much because he was like so cool uh, to me. And uh, we, did, we had a lot of blind interest with like hip hop dance and and uh, we both played soccer together. He was the captain of my soccer team. And fortunately, he had passed away in a car accident. Mm. And that was a few months right before I graduated. So between home life and between losing him, I was at my wit's end. I just knew I had to get out of there before I did something to myself. Um, because I was, I, that was a really new low. That was losing, losing uh, a friend like that is so close to you. It was really like losing a brother to me. Mm-hmm. Um, that is probably the most painful thing I've, I've ever felt more so than the abuse that I went through with my parents, both just parents, honestly. But uh, again, between that and just my home life, I decided to move out uh, and try and find this escape. So I remember I was walking around my local mall and the armed career forces center was like shining on my face. Uh-huh. And I'm like, I never thought about going to the military but I don't have, I don't have money. I don't know where to go. I just need to get out of here. Mm-hmm. So I was looking at brochures and I remember one of, uh, one of the, uh, the army members came over and he's like, are you trying to join the army son? And I'm just like, I would like to know what the longest boot camp is. It's like, Oh, that would be the Marine Corps. Are you sure you don't want to join the army? I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm going to the Marines. Wow. So I look for the longest, the longest boot camp for that escape. I remember walking in there. You know, I got into the what they call the pool E program uh, before you get shipped off to boot camp. And uh, yeah, it was, it was it was quite fascinating. That's how I was able to get out of physically out of the situation I was in to answer your question. Things didn't really start to look better until, you know, after boot camp. Boot camp was, I'll tell you, was a great distraction. It was a great numbing. It was a great away from everything and confronting a lot of things uh but i I, i'll say this it wasn't all processed it was just numbing and totally just numbing the pain and it was the place where i could just escape and you know i didn't need that space though at the end of the day 
So there's that. Mm -hmm. So, so from there, yeah. Like what was the, what, what was next for, I guess the, the healing, I guess. Um, well, aside from leaving for the military or signing up for the military, I'll, I'll, I'll backtrack before I went to boot camp. I think this is something that most adopted kids want to, that w would, would go through from what, from what I've um, experienced with other adoptees. They, there's this like, well, where did they come from? Where are my parents? Um, and if you're a transracial adoptee, which is what I am, meaning your parents are of a different culture or a different race, a different ethnicity, um, there's definitely that gap. So unless you're, you're adopted uh, parents that are from a different culture from you or a different race, unless they raised you around your actual culture, you, there's this like gap in identity as most adopted kids go through. Uh, if you're a transracial adoptee, especially where it's like, I, I, I look like this, right? Everyone, everyone wants to call me out for being different or different color or being Asian and making harmful stereotype jokes uh, whether it be Kung Fu or, you know, the, the whole dissing your, your genitalia for being an Asian guy, or you're really good at math, you're, you're nerdy or whatever, whatever it would be. Um, it's funny because those are the guys coming from a small town conservative, uh, place. They're the ones that say, Oh, we see no color. We see no color. As long as you provide value in the country, then, you know, then, then we respect you. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what your race is. We don't see color, but they're they're also the same MFers that that are in the hallways calling me the N word, right. calling me, you know, call me out, young slurs at me as they drive by and shit. So it's just like, yeah, that's that, that's that's messed up. But anyway, I, I I again, I was trying to close that gap a little bit. Like, who am I? Where do I come from? So I got in contact. I found off through Facebook. I got in contact with one of my my aunties, my mm. actual aunties, my birth father's side. And I, rem I remember a lot of their names, but I remember being a little bit closer to her when I was a kid before I got adopted. So I reached out through Facebook and then she, we were headed back and forth. She's like, let's fly you out to Las Vegas. Let's let's fly you out to this is where, you know, I'm still living here. We'll have a huge family reunion um, on my birth father's side. And I agreed to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I agreed to do this reunion before I shipped off to boot camp that same year I graduated high school. So um, part of the healing, again, I had that reunion. I flew out to Las Vegas, had that reunion with my birth father's side of the family. And it was wild to me because I remember every single, I remembered every single one of their faces mm -hmm. and a lot of, most of them, I remember their names. And this is only memories from when I was only up to five years old. It was right. wild. Um, and then seeing my birth father and it's wild being an adult. And it's just like, I haven't seen y'all since I was a tiny, tiny kid. But I also see my facial features. Like, wow, this is like what blood family feels like. This is, this is wild. Um, and it was a good trip. It was a good trip overall. I got to uh, bond with my my family, my Lola, my Lolo, before he passed away. Mm. Um, and uh, I learned a lot. I learned a lot of just like, wow, this is what Filipino culture is like. You know, mm -hmm. these gatherings, big gatherings, and all the cousins, and the aunties, the uncles, you know, the karaoke that's going on, and, you know, whatever, whatever it is. 
So at that point, I did feel fulfilled. Um, and my birth father, it was a little awkward. I'm like, you know, right away, he was like, oh, I love you, son, and all this stuff. I'm like, bro, you haven't seen me in 14 years. Like, I don't know. I don't know how comfortable exchanging anything with you just yet. Mm-hmm. But uh, it is what it is. So we, uh, we kind of like parted ways after that trip. And then I went off to boot camp um, a few months later. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was step one of healing. Step two is just getting through boot camp. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's known as one of the hardest boot camps. It really is known as the hardest boot camp because yeah. it's the longest and, you know, the most grueling and um, most physically demanding. The physical requirements and the standards are higher than that of the Army or the Air Force. So uh, I don't want to say it was a cakewalk because it wasn't. But I will say this. Boot camp is made to break who you are just to build you back up with more order and discipline and the, the the morals and the values that the that the military carry and um i i i felt like i was never truly they truly broke me because i was already broken mm. um they could their way of, of trying to break you is trying to put you as through as many physical uh, challenging things and then getting in your face, putting that high pressure of just screaming in your face and do tasks as quickly as possible and make you feel uncomfortable. But that's been my life. That's been my life. And I almost gave, you know, I almost kind of credit my, uh, my parent, my abusive adopted parents. So I'm just like, my whole life has been a boot camp. So coming into here, it wasn't that big of a deal. Got drill instructors in my face, screaming at me, blah, blah, blah. It's not like I rolled my eyes. It's kind of like, I just, I was a really good listener. I just did it. Yeah. And I knew how I kept my mouth shut and I knew how to follow orders because that's what I was basically raised and trained to do. But you would see some of these recruits that would come into boot camp that are like, you know, six foot three. They came, they came in, they're like rippling muscle, 230 uh-huh. pounds. These, these freaking wild specimens are like 18, 19 years old, uh-huh. you know, making me feel like I'm a string bean. And uh, those are, the, you know, a lot of these tough guys that come in, those, a lot of them, they break. They're the ones that are doing a bunch of push-ups and they're crying and they don't understand what's going on. And in my head, I'm just like, y'all don't see it's just one big mind fuck. Like, you don't, you guys don't see this. And then I realized, I'm just like, wow, like, yeah, my upbringing really prepared me for this. Mm. So I was already broken. I was very numb and broken, but it did give me order, uh, a, a higher sense of order and discipline that my parents did not give me. Yeah, That was chaos. They gave me true, like, you know, an ethos of commitment and dedication and, and, and order. So that was a good thing. So after camp, I moved back home. Um, I had a plan in my head. At least I thought it was going to be a plan. Uh, the military, you know, you watch out, those recruiters will lie or they won't tell you the full truth. I was like, yeah, your college tuition will be paid off. That was my plan. Go to the military, get boot camp. And there's a thing called a GI Bill, which, you know, helps assist you with tuition, college tuition. I'm like, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to make something of myself and I'm going to be my own independent man. So that was the plan. Yeah. Right. Boot camp came back. Uh, I, I got done with my, my military occupational school training, my MOS school training, got back home. I was back in my parents' house. So I'm like, you know what? Yeah, in Pennsylvania. Okay. I'm back in my adopted parents' house after military training. And I'm like, okay, it's a, it's a new year. It's a new me. I'm a man, I'm a Marine, I'm this badass warrior that the Marines have trained me to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like my parents give me a little bit more respect. 
let's see if things change. My, uh, let me remind you, my brothers and sisters are still living in the household and they're, they're, they're still going through school and stuff like that. Still trying to graduate high school, but I'm back and I'm feeling like this new man. I'm actually trying to help around in the house more, trying to be as mature as possible. And uh, I remember I was trying to sign up for classes for college and uh, that's when I learned, oh, my GI bill only covers a small percentage. It doesn't mm. cover the full thing. And I was like, damn, those recruiters really said that my college tuition was really going to be covered. Yeah. But they don't tell you the full truth. Um, you have to accumulate more active duty days. And I would have had to like tour Afghanistan like two or three times to get 100% tuition covered. Wow. So that's how that works. Especially for me in the reserves. If I was active duty... That'd be different because I'm full time and every day I would accrue more active duty days. But yeah, for me, I have to like do some crazy shit like that to get a hundred percent. Um, so that didn't work out for me. I remember asking my parents, I'm like, listen, I got I got uh I'm taking out like these subsidized loans and stuff from the state, and I'm still short a few thousand dollars. But can you guys co-sign a loan for me? Because I knew other kids, like the normal things are their parents would co-sign a loan and and there they go. They got they got financial aid from the parents. Right. Uh, I remember I asked, and they said no. And I was like, I how am I supposed to go to college then? And we got in an argument, and they're just like, you're gonna do what we did. We had to like work and uh, pay college for yourself. And I was like, these are different times. Yeah. And not only that, they were charging me rent. When I moved back, they were charging me rent. Wow. Me rent and all this. I'm trying to like. I'm like, I don't have money. Like, you're going to have to figure it out. I'm like, this is unfair. And then I remember my dad bomb rushed me in the kitchen and threw me up against a wall and uh, basically told me the conversation was over. So after that, I called one of my buddies um, and we met up at a gym and I was like, just fuming. And he actually talked to his parents for me. And this is a blessing. I am grateful for this. Um, he talked to his uh, parents for me and they decided to house me for about two and a half years. Wow. Um, there's this, there's this beautiful Sicilian Italian family. Um, and I lived in their, I lived in their basement. Wow. Um, and they even helped employ me though. The, the wow. father of the family. Yeah. The father of the family, um, he owned, it wasn't anything extravagant, but he owned his own cleaning business. So I, I was uh, a cleaning guy. This was only, gosh, which was only eight, nine years ago. Really? Okay. Uh, I was, yeah, at that point I was 20, 21, 22. And um, I was working all these odd jobs before it was in the restaurant. I was bar backing at a club. I was security. It was um, doing all those things. And then when uh, this, this father of this house, this Italian household decided to employ me, I gave up those jobs and then became this cleaning guy that would basically clean apartments out after you move out, like someone's got to restore it to like brand new right. condition. And that's me and this Salvadorian woman that barely spoke English. I'd have to speak broken English or Spanish to her. Um, we work side by side and here we are with our buckets and our, and our blue, uh, our blue gloves and rags and, and ready just to wipe everything down, vacuum up, whatever. Uh, and I also did pressure washing and deck staining as part wow. of his other business. So I did, I did that work under the table and I remember on average I was making about $350 under the table. It wasn't much, yeah. wasn't much to cover my car payment, my phone and gas. And I'd be lucky if I could afford more than one meal a day. 
Mm. So that was my life. that was my life in my early early twenties, mm. and um, now I just didn't accept my fate of being a cleaner. I was like, I gotta do something else. I gotta I gotta grind. So I relied on some graphic design skills that I had learned back in when I was in high school. I attended a tech school and did this program called Advertising Art and Design, and I learned Adobe Photoshop, Illustrator, InDesign, just basically the necessities of what you would need to be a graphic designer. And I got certified as a graphic designer from there, graduated top of my class. It's probably one of the very few things I'm very proud of myself. But um, yeah, I relied on those skills and I found through Craigslist clients, freelance clients that need wow. like pictures, business cards, yeah, website yeah. design, you know? And I just knew that like, all right, if I can't get into the workforce with, uh, with a college degree, what's the next biggest thing that they, that employers look at if I'm getting the design, you know, the design career, um, the design industry. And I was like, the portfolio, what can you do? Yeah, so yeah. I'm like, all right, plan. And during the day, I'm going to be this cleaning guy, pressure washer, deck sander, stainer guy. And then at night and weekends, when I have the energy to, I'm going to go to my local Barnes & Noble shop. They had a Starbucks cafe there, plug in my old ass MacBook that I had. Um, I, uh, I I had some old downloaded programs from Photoshop, Illustrator, InDesign, and I was like, I was on it. Craigslist, wow. let's go, let's let's this, this amateur portfolio. So I did that for about two and a half years. Um, and as my portfolio grew, I was applying everywhere I could around me. And for two and a half years, I got no calls for anything, yeah. not one, not one. And there was a point where I just hit my tolerance and I was tired. I remember I was in my hand. <laughs> I was cleaning out this apartment. I was on my hands and knees wiping this bathroom floor. It's 21 years old at that point. And I knew my friends were going to graduate college soon. I just felt like a complete loser. Mm -hmm. Felt worthless. Felt like this is, this is my life. And I, I, sh I remember I was, I was on that bathroom floor and I shut the door with my foot and uh, I rolled my eyes out. I cried. I cried so hard on that floor. And you know, it's weird. I get a little, a little emotional thinking about now because I remember just feeling broken, like um, and broke in all the senses, broke inside, broke financially. Um, it was really hard. And I remember I just, I prayed to God and call it what you will, call divine intervention and whatnot. But like I was, I was praying to God, the powers that be, the universe, whatever you want to believe. I'm just like, there has to be something more for me this can't be it i'm trying everything i can i don't know what else i can do so please like i need i need your help i i don't know what else to do and so and so i uh this is gonna sound like the most asian like story ever but <laughs> later on that day i went to my local chinese takeout restaurant i got my journal styles chicken my white rice <laughs> i ate that up I open up my fortune cookie and I have a picture of it that I say. Um, and the fortune was your luck is about to change. Mm. I kid you not. The next day, the next day I get a call from a men's fashion company that was only 12 minutes away from me. It was like, Hey, we'd like to bring you in for an interview as a graphic web designer. Wow. Um, and I was like, what the F like, are you for real? I'm like, okay. So, I was ecstatic. I'm like, I, I, uh, 
I was like, this is, this could be my ticket. This is all I wanted in life was just to be a young professional. I can support myself and I can blend in with society and I can finally be in some way normal. Mm-hmm. So I went to this job interview. They want to hire me the same day. They ended up hiring me um, at a whopping $30,000 a year. It wasn't much at all. <laughs> but the reason I, 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 I say that is because like, regardless of the money, I was, I was so happy. Yeah. Like these feelings of, it was, uh, you ever watch the pursuit of happiness Yeah. with Wilson? That was me. Yeah. That was like, I remember watching that and like just read those feelings, the, 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 the feelings that I resonate with that character, uh, in the pursuit of happiness where it's just like, you tried everything you can and you stuck to it, you stay committed and it happened. Awesome. And, uh, so I got, I got hired. I was like, all right, here's my plan. I'm going to work it for two years. Um, and then I'm going to move on to the next thing. I can climb the corporate ladder somewhere. Um, and that's exactly what I did. Two years worked there, got hired at another company, learned product UX design um, on the on the job for four and a half years uh, at a company called Penske and grateful for that experience. And then after that, I moved on to the company I work at today, which is Oracle, which, you know, it's the second largest software company in the world. Yeah, yeah. And I have to pin sometimes that like, wow, what a fucking journey that right. this is. Um, so, so I, I, I got to get some questions in there. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm like, like rambling. No, 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 no. I, I don't want to stop because you have such a good, like you're on such a good pace, but like before I get too far away from the, what you've mentioned before, cause I, I have a couple of follow-ups to some of the things you've said. Um, sure. so like now you're in LA, but like throughout these experiences, in Pennsylvania and Nevada, you know, I partly as an Asian American, but also just in general. So like, how did all of these early life experiences to your mid 20s or to your early 20s? I mean, how did this shape your identity as a man, as an Asian American, as an individual? Like how, how did you view yourself throughout that time? Yeah. Like I said, it started with a lot of internalized racism, mm-hmm. self-hate, um, out of the desire to be belonged, to feel like I fit in and um, trying to assimilate into white American culture, basically, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it started off that way. Right. It wasn't until I moved out of my parents' house um, and I was on my own even during my my time staying with that Italian family, like I I was I still had this loss of identity of like you know where do I belong? Am I I I'm 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 not white enough to be in a white family or to truly fit in with this white type of friend group that I had. Um, and that's not to say they didn't like me. I know they liked me, but you felt um, you felt like few... the odd one out, perhaps, right? Like, you, you, yeah, of course, of course. I mean, if there's anyone out there listening, but like, you 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 tell me when you found that the the eth- that one ethnic guy in an all white friend group was the guy or the guy that they really liked having around all the time, or they really invested in. I can guarantee yeah. you more time. Uh, 
you're going to feel like you're outside of the circle. You're going to feel like yeah. a foot in because they like you enough to have you around, but you're foot out because you're not truly, truly accepted. They're not going to understand your perspective as um, someone with a different uh, ethnic background. Mm-hmm. Not going to understand your plight or what you had to go, go through or your adversities. Mm-hmm. But then I look at the other flip side of the coin. I'm like, I've been around other Filipinos and Asians, but I feel super whitewashed mm-hmm. and I don't, I don't necessarily like fit in there. So it's a weird like balancing act. It's kind of like, where do I fit in? And, and I think a lot of adoptees actually go through that. Mm-hmm. Um, but to answer your question more, how has it shaped me as a, as a man, as an, as an Asian American, all this, the, all those experiences? Um, well, that's a really good word. First off, shape. Mm. I think it's important that anyone that has has gone through a lot of trauma that you let those that those things you actually have the control in your life to make sure that it shapes you, but it doesn't necessarily define you. Right. Uh, there was there was a time in my life in my younger twenties when I wasn't as self aware or, or I wasn't as emotionally intelligent um, about these things. I there was a there's a time when I was really slipping down the victim the victim path the victim mindset path and letting things happen to me and letting my trauma define me that I, I was my trauma. I remember like meeting new friends or like, gosh, in my young twenties, I was awkward as hell, but like trying to meet like new girls. Mm. And like, the only thing I could talk about was, uh, I was, you know, this is where I came from. It was really sad. Like, I mm. But like, I was letting it define me. That's not who I am. You know, if I think about my inner child and I think about like who I am at my core, I'm like, I, I love, I love, um, I love drawing, I love art. I love listening to music. I love hip hop culture. I love dance, like hip hop dance back in the day. Um, I love anime. I love uh, all these things. Like, but what did I talk about? Mm-hmm. I talked about my thoughts and the things I went through and I was letting it define me. Mm-hmm. So um, it didn't come until like my mid to later twenties when I had this, had more realization and more self-awareness where I was like, okay, I need to find gratitude in where I'm at. I need to look at my 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 path behind me and realize that's not my path forward. It's all behind me. But look at all the things I've had to endure between my brothers and sisters and I. Look at what we all had to endure. There's ultimate resilience there. There's there's an absolute story of strength. There's an, a story of fight mm-hmm. uh, that's there and those things I can take with me moving forward. But what I don't need to take with me moving forward is, um, you know, a lot of the, the, the guilt, the shame, the pain. Um, if I carry that forward, then I'm letting those things define me. And that's, that's, you go down a very, very dark and slippery path. If you move further and further into your adulthood, mm-hmm. uh, with those things on your shoulders. So yeah. I, 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 I mean, I think you're, everything you're saying is, like exactly what I wanted to hear. But I mean, one thing I wanted to first note is I love that you mentioned earlier on that drawing was an outlet for you and then graphic design ended up being your way out. So I thought that was such a cool connection. Um, but on, on, a certain, on a more specific note, hearing about identity, how did you, besides you know that family reunion, before um, boot camp, how else did you kind of find your identity as a Filipino American? Like, how did you kind of learn more about your culture? I guess. 
Um, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, my my journey with trying to identify as a Filipino American specifically didn't really get super kicked off until I moved here to LA two years ago. But my identity as an Asian American kicked off earlier. Um, probably back when I was it wasn't until my later twenties when I really started to do the work, I call it, to really do the research of like where I come from. I did a 23 and me. I um, mm -hmm. um and then there was in, in 2020 the spike in anti-Asian hate. Um and it really struck close to home with me because my younger sister, I remember she called me crying and she was like, someone would like roll down their window in the in the parking lot in, in Pennsylvania where we used to live and like told her like go home COVID and it like shocked her and it like mm. um my my younger sister's timid enough, but you know, just experiencing that was very traumatic for her. Um that made me extremely upset. And then I started going down these rabbit holes of trying to figure out like, yo, is anyone else experiencing this? Like, this is crazy. And I saw more and more on my social media. Um, and then from social media, it, it took a little bit, but it then got to the news. Mm -hmm. um, and then I just had this ultimate empathy for our kind. Because I'm just like these shared experiences that we have through adversities and now we're, it's really ramping up. Um, you know, there's all different factors because of COVID or the Trump administration and their their way of talking about us and using certain terminologies, like you know, whatever the Kung Flu virus, whatever, whatever bullshit they want to say. Mm -hmm. Um, it doesn't help. And then yeah, there's so much, so much going on there. And that kind of like really lit a fire underneath my ass to like, yo, I am not, I am not this white person as much as I wanted to be white I'm not this white person that I want to be and I don't want to be anymore I want mm -hmm. to side with my people and their perspectives on how they're living because I actually find more commonality and more relation to what they're going through like that's been my experience and I hear more and more stories and more people speaking up so there's been as you know there's been this massive boom with the Asian American culture in the last several years last three years and um that's what really help actually uh, i know there's a lot of tragedy and then there's a lot of dark dark things going on within our community since the pandemic but through that i believe there's been unity with our with with culture and through unity there's been organization through organization there's been positive outcomes um and now you know you can go turn on netflix and see that there's actual like asian american tv shows and i right. think it's the coolest shit because Growing up, I was struggling trying to find something like that. Like I, we had Jackie Chan, Jet Li, I looked up to. Um, there was a Blue Power Ranger back in the day that I looked up to. He was, he was Michael Copan, that was the actor's name. Yeah, he was yeah. the Blue Time Ranger, and he was like, he was a uh, Filipino American. Mm. So there were very few people I could really look up to. But now you can turn on the TV, and like, there's so much that you can see. Mm -hmm. So I'm really happy to see where we're at. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, I keep going on these side tangents because I just no, no, like, no, no, no. So many... no, I think that that wasn't a. I don't think that was a side tangent. Don't worry. I thought that all added into the question I asked. Um, yeah. I think uh, another th thing because 
I actually note, noted this down. I keep looking down. I'm not texting. I'm writing down questions. I'm reviewing my notes. So yeah. if I'm looking yeah. down, I, I'm not playing Candy Crush or something, I promise. But um, okay. something you had mentioned, you know, about, you know, talking to girls or whatever it might be about, you know, and then you were talking about your experiences rather yeah. than your interests, right? Like it, it just, it, it reminded me of a question I wrote down earlier about your view of romantic relationships based on the two sets of parents that you had, your birth parents and your adoptive parents. Yeah. Have you, would you say that made an impact at all on how you viewed romantic relationships at all? Or like, did it, did, how did you have to unlearn that that wasn't common? I didn't really have to unlearn it because I knew it was wrong. Mm. I, I, when I was younger and I, and I saw my adopted parent, my birth parents and my adopted parents, how their relationships were. And I observed, I was, I was such a, I was quite the observer when I was younger, but I'd see their relationships and then go out to school and I see my friends' parents and been around at their houses and I see how they interact. So at a very young age, I just knew intuitively what is right, what is wrong in terms of, you know, what, what in a relationship, what is right, what is wrong. So I didn't have to really necessarily unlearn. I think it was more about like, I'm going to go out and try this and mm. just get myself out there and, and um, go with what I think is right. Um, I always say my parents, a lot of the time, they, they taught me what not, they taught me what not to do, hmm. you know? So I think you can absolutely learn from other people's mistakes by just pure observation or, um, you know, I don't think it's good to, to, I don't think it's good to be screaming at your partner. Right. I don't think right. it's good that you, you call them names and, mm -hmm. you know, every single name in the book. I think it's right. good that you throw things at them. Like, it's just things where I'm just like, it's actually made me quite uh, a person where I, I don't like conflict because conflict has always been around me. I like peace, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that's what I would look for in, in relationships. However, you, know, you bring up relationships, and I think this is really, really important for anyone's mental health journey. Um, a life coach slash therapist told me, told me this, you, you truly learn the most when you're in relationships, your truest self actually comes out when you're in relationships. The reason that is said is because there is someone else that you're letting in. You have, you're, you're, you're both put in a place where you need to be vulnerable and at the, to, to some level, and then because of that, you're actually challenged on your own morals and values. This is why you get in arguments are, I would say, are very normal in relationships. They happen sometimes, mm -hmm. you know. There's no such thing as a perfect relationship where you're never ever fighting, you're never ever arguing. That's more to me, that's more of a red flag, like something's going on there. Um, right, right, right. But, you know, so I so in relationships, I've actually learned most about myself through relationships and the things I needed to heal. Because hmm. back then young Tim, when he was, when he got in his first relationship at, uh, my first high school relationship at 17 years old and my first true love at 22 years old, um, I failed a lot of my, my twenties relationships. I'm 31 today. And, um, where I failed was actually just like, I realized, oh my God, I'm so insecure. Mm. I, I wanted to be controlling in a sense that like, I had a problem if you had guy friends. I'd be that guy. Mm -hmm. uh, you, 
that guy who's this and like oh yo, you should unfollow this person this isn't cool or whatever like what do you mean you're going to this party this guy invited uh-huh. you to i mean like i was i was really really insecure and it it came i i had to sit a lot in my mid to later 20s kind of reflecting on why this is and the answer is that well i crave love and affection crave love the things that i grew up without and when you're in a relationship you get that Mm-hmm. and i have i've had fear of abandonment issues so like if there's a threat what i would identify as a threat in a relationship or i just wanted to protect myself most of all and i wanted to protect us from from having to break up i mm-hmm. wanted you to stay here with me, even if that meant i'm going to be this insecure fool that's going to like create arguments and fights um to to get you to stay with me. Um, it was always, it was always just me being this emotional wreck and like, I would be very emotionally manipulative and I'm being quite honest here. Like I was, I grew up very, very sensitive. I've always been a very sensitive kid. Um, and it wasn't until my later twenties when I started to attend regular therapy and I started to learn more about psychology, childhood trauma and things like that. I got much more emotionally intelligent. I started meditating. I started doing a lot of things to be much more emotionally aware and, and through reflecting through my past relationships, my failed relationships, um, I realized I'm like, wow, back then I was just, I was, I was too controlling and I was insecure. I've been... mm-hmm. I think it's so great that I, I actually commend you a lot for being so honest about that, because I think that's something that unfortunately, almost every young man who dates in high school goes through, unfortunately. And I, it's horrible because... I mean, I was that guy too about being insecure about in like my first relationship and like, like why are you talking to this person? Why are you talking to that person? And all of it comes out of all these young men being insecure. And I think we instead of us, you know, you 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 said it, you said it, you know, it's 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 horrible that we put the other person through that. And I yes. think it's very good that you're so honest about that because it's something that I think we're not acknowledging enough in society. And unfortunately. There's certain personalities out there, like an Andrew Tate or these other like alpha male people. Oh, that <laughs> there's these alpha male guys out there that are sharing about that are perpetuating the insecurity and going the opposite way. So I I think it's great that you you were so honest about that. Um, and then there's other things I wanted to touch on, and I want you to continue on this path because you're you're already talking about it in the relationships, but. So I'll go ahead and continue the thought, but the next thing I just wanted to ask was because you're you're so honest, you're so self-aware about the, your mistakes and the way you're learning um, through these experiences, like what have you learned was successful and what has been unsuccessful and how you tried to approach your, how you care for your mental health? My mental health, um, what was successful and what was unsuccessful? Uh. I, I will say what wasn't successful. Let's start with what wasn't successful because I, I think my, my first swing at taking care of myself uh, wasn't successful at all. Um, and that was always wanting to be in a relationship. Mm. Women were, were basically my vice. Like that was, um, and I'm not saying it in a way where I'm like womanizing. I truly was a serial monogamous and I wanted to be in a relationship. Um, and I found some type of safe haven there. 
Uh, but really what it was, was this crave, and this crave for love and affection and feeling significant and feeling like I actually matter to someone. Um, so that was unsuccessful because I kept getting these relationships where it was trauma bonded. There was always fights. I either got, I also got cheated on several times, but I actually take responsibility most of all for some of those really prefer every single one of my relationships really, because I created an environment where my partner didn't feel safe around me and I don't blame them for wanting an exit. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying what they did was right. What I'm saying is I don't blame them for wanting an exit. Hmm. Um, you know, my control, my arguments about guys, all this, all this insecure bullshit that I was putting on the table. Like, of course, you know, at some point your partner's going to get sick of it and they're probably going to want to look for some way out. And that's exactly what happened. So, um, I kept getting in these failed relationships. Go back to what I was saying. I was getting back into these back-to-back failed relationships. I'm like, which I, at first I was pointing a finger at them. Mm. First I was like, oh my God, they cheated on me. Like I knew it. I knew it. Like, you know what? And then I, I reflected back. I've been through enough uh, relationships. It was like in my mid-20s. I was like 26, I think. 25, 26, where I was like sitting in my apartment that I had in Pennsylvania, my own apartment. I'm just like point of realization just thinking about all the relationships i've been through and thinking like wow they like a lot of them none of them deserved how i treated them how i treated situations and that distrust that i had for them because um i had to realize that like i need to change i need to take responsibility it wasn't fair of me back then to point the finger at them um but this is the the good and the bad about being in a relationship, like I said, your truest self will come to show in a relationship when someone's challenging your own morals and values um, and how you think and how you act towards things, your true colors truly come out. You can go ahead and spend as much time as you want alone and read all the self-help books, or sometimes I like to call them shelf-help books because, uh, you know, let's be honest, there's people out there and I'm guilty of it, of buying these self-help books and, you know, about therapy and mindset change and, and whatever. And I don't even get through half of them. They're just mm. sitting on my shelf and they look good. And I'm like, yeah, I'll pick it up later. This is good. <laughs> the, 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 cover, the cover looked good anyway. Right, right. <laughs> but um, you can go ahead and spend as much time as you want, but relationships put you in an environment where it's all about practicality. Practice what you preach. It's easy to be alone. It's easy when no one's challenging you. You can go ahead and gather all the superficial knowledge you want. But until you actually start practicing what you preach, which in my belief is like you put the real practice in a relationship with, with someone that you're letting in vulnerably, um, then that's that's where that's at. So um, that was unsuccessful, just relationships and things like that. What is successful that, that has helped cope with my mental health, um, being ultimately active, hmm. physically active. Um so I've always taken care of, of myself through working out. Um, I've always been involved in sports, doing extracurricular activities. Um, and I mean, from weightlift, from, from, I don't know, weightlifting and, and I did track and soccer uh, back in high school. And then after, after that, you know, going to the Marines, very physically demanding, obviously, um, and MMA, mixed martial arts and fighting and jujitsu tournaments, and all of these things that has really helped um, as a coping mechanism for mental health. Um, but I will say this, there's people like 
you know, they entertain to the world and other podcasters, these macho podcasters that go on and they're just like, you know, everything, you can fix everything in the gym. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely a farce. Mm -hmm. So wrong. So wrong to tell young men that you're not going to fix everything by lifting a, uh, you know, your 40 pound dumbbell up and down. Like at most you'll find grounding. And that's where I go to the gym. Totally. I go to ground myself and to, and there is self-esteem and confidence over time. As you progressively get more and more shape, of course, that comes with other perks. But uh, yet, you're not going to fix your mental health in freaking 24 hour fitness. I'm sorry. It's not <laughs> plant fitness, the pizza right. there is not going to save your mental health. No matter how you know nice I mean? the gym is, no matter what you're pushing, it's not going to fix everything 100%. It's not. It's not. Right. But absolutely keep it, keep it in your daily routine, which is. My next, which is my next thing I was going to say, probably the most important thing I'm going to really say about uh, coping from mental health. Um, it is really easy, especially today with social media and endless reels and TikToks that you can just zombie out to um, and escape reality. It is really easy to just lose yourself into your mental health mm -hmm. uh, in a negative way, to your traumas. Um, if you're going through a tough time, through whatever you're going through, a lot of people, I believe, and from what I've seen, what a lot of people do is they look for escapism. And the best escapism that they find is social media. It's endless TikTok and Reels. Like, you know, it's it's uh, just an endless supply of dopamine for you. But it ends up being self-sabotage because you're procrastinating on confronting the things that you need to confront. Uh, instead of facing it head on, you just look divert, go somewhere mm -hmm. else, mm -hmm. look for something else. So... The main thing I want to say is what has truly, truly helped me in my mental health with not using, for me, again, this is only works for me, in my experience, I don't use mental health drugs. Um, I tried it. I've tried, I've tried Adderall for ADHD. I've mm -hmm. tried antidepressants. I think it was, uh, was, was it Zoloft? I don't know. Now that it's allergy pills. Anyway. It was a while ago. I tried it yeah. for, for both of those. I tried for about a few months. I did not like it. It made me feel like, like the Adderall was great. Trust me, it works. Mm -hmm. But I didn't crash. You're not supposed to take mm -hmm. it every day. I crashed really hard. And it, it, it made me feel worse uh, with those crashes. So when I wasn't on it. So I stopped that. The antidepressants, it just made me feel like a robot. Mm -hmm. Like, it's okay. It's just a robot. Whatever. Mm -hmm. I didn't like it. So... I wanted to focus on like, okay, uh, what can I do? So I really took my daily routine serious from the time I wake up, right? And it doesn't always happen every day, uh, exactly how I'm going to say it, but I, the ideal and how I, uh, when I'm at my best, I will say, I'll wake up, stay off your phone for the first 30 minutes. I know you probably heard it in other podcasts, stay off your phone for the first 30 minutes because that blue light hitting your your eyes is actually really bad and you're putting yourself in a state of anxiety already. Um, I get out of bed. I make my bed every morning. Actually, that is true. Every single morning I make my bed. That's It, it goes a long way. Um, you try to get outside, get some sunlight, come back in. Um, it's a great time to either meditate or journal, which I do. I go to my local coffee shop um, and, and journal. Um, and then you cook off your, your day. And then at some point, Make sure your your diet your is is on point. As far as like, I'm not saying you have to go crazy and weigh your food. Just make sure you're eating regularly throughout the day so your blood sugars are up. 
mm-hmm. um, and you're not feeling like a, a, a dead vegetable by two o'clock and having this weird crash, um, make some time for you to absolutely get your body moving, get your endorphins up. That is the best source of, of adrenaline and dopamine you can get is naturally is mm-hmm. through your own means. Be, I always say, beware of the dopamine that you get that you don't work for. And that's why I said like that, t- like, you know, TikTok, endless reels on Instagram. I, I fall into it all the time. I really do. I'm really trying to work. I'm, I'm not going to be on this podcast and say I'm an angel here. And I know what the, that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm practicing what I preach all the time because I, I do fall sometimes. Yeah. Um, and I fall to just sitting and letting my mental health get the best of me. So it takes true willpower. It takes a true fight to, to kind of like loop it, loop all the way from the beginning what I said. It takes a true willpower and fight to go against how your, bo- your, your, your body and your brain is hardwired. Mm-hmm. Your body and your brain is hardwired to keep you safe, but kind of coddle you and makes you want to sit and not do anything. Just, you know, and worry about things. You got to go out there. You got to you have to really make a true fight and in, in your routine, your routine is, is everything. And I always, I always go back to this one saying, it's just, uh, your actions define who you are. And it's true. It's, it's certainly not the, if you look at the opposite, it's certainly not the, in, the inactions that really define who you are. It's your actions. Mm-hmm. So, um, I really try to keep that at the forefront of my mind when I, feeling down or something or i notice i'm like sitting and i'm just like wanting that escapism all right i need to get up i need to eat i gotta make a plan in my head what am i doing today mm-hmm. start with today because it's so easy to just for me to spiral and think about um the future future and the past past and i think uh a lot of people we just need to we need to start focusing on being present yeah. and that's the toughest thing i think that's the toughest thing that society is probably going to that is probably facing, uh, especially with all the escapisms that we have all around us and social media and things that distract us, being present in the now, because that's where healing is, is truly in the present. It's not all that in the future. It's not all that in the past. It's, you have to be present. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I, I love what you said. I, I love like hearing your perspective on what has worked, what hasn't worked. And I, I actually really appreciate that you started off by saying, here's what worked for me. Here's what worked for me personally. You didn't say, hey, everyone, you need to do this. You know, uh, you did, yeah. yeah, because, because like for me, right, right. Because for me, I love my Lexapro, my daily Lexapro. It gets me through the day. And like, for, I, I, I've been lucky. It didn't flatline me. I've heard from other people, you know, they tried um, mental health, like, me, like medicine. And, you know, I've heard the same thing. It kind of just was flat. But for me, like it, it just brought me back to who I was before um, I had a really bad like clinical depression. So it's like, for me, that's what has worked as well as act being active as well as like therapy, like all these things have helped, but I'm really glad that you shared your perspective and you started off by saying, here's what worked for me because you know, it is, it is yes. different for everyone, you know? Um, yeah, I, forgot to, I forgot to mention. Yeah. Yeah. I go to therapy. I go to every Friday uh-huh. and and I believe it. I've been doing it for the last several years now, uh, in my mid to later twenties to now that I'm 31, it's really important. Mm-hmm. And, uh, at first I think I had this, I think there's this stigma about going to therapy that 
it can be embarrassing or that it's supposed to fix you overnight. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, you know, it's like the Goodwill Hunting movie, which is a very touching movie. You know, it's one of my favorite movies, but it's like the Goodwill Hunting movie where it's like within a few hours, you'll have this big realization and things will <laughs> right. be fixed. Like that's not, it's not how it is. It's, it's, uh, uh, especially uh, not all therapists are meant for you. I've had to go through right. several before I'm like a good one. So that's another thing where people I, I see like give up so, so quickly with mm-hmm. mental health, um, or, sorry, with, with therapy. So yeah, therapy, I, I forgot to mention, I didn't mean to interject, but, um, no, no, I'm yeah. glad you did. No, too. Yeah. I mean, I, I just started because I, I fell into the trap and I, I'm sorry, I don't want to make it about me. I fell into the trap of trying therapy. Didn't work out with my first therapist. I quit mm-hmm. for a long time. I, I was, I just started up again. I was, I didn't do therapy for like six years just because mm-hmm. I tried one, didn't like it, thought it wasn't for me. And this is coming from me who I work for changing tides. Like I work in mental health and I was yeah. like, therapy is yeah. just not for me. But I did, I've done like four, three months, four months over time. The anxiety went down, the coping mechanisms, the way I communicate my emotions, like it has it helped so much, you know? So, um, and you know, you also don't need to be in a crisis to see therapy, right? Like, like you've been ongoing for years, right? So um Tim, yeah, I would, I would, yeah yeah go please please i was just gonna say you know therapy provides a great safe space for you to open up your feelings to someone that maybe you you don't feel very safe with like it's your family you can be with your family friend that's always a way to being space for what is on your mind or how you're feeling and um it's i i find great therapy being in therapy, talking to a therapist, because they're like this third person, like unbiased source that I can talk to on a consistent basis. And mm-hmm. it keeps me again, present with my mind on what I'm thinking about. And then there's, there, there's, there's a science to you just verbally speaking about it. Yep. Uh, what's your mom? What's on your mind? What are you, what are you, what are you saying to yourself? If you just keep it in your mind, like most people do, or I would say a lot of people do, and they're not, if they're not in therapy, um, your mind is a, is a freaking tornado. It's a, it's, it's got zooming thoughts and feelings mm-hmm. and emotions until you actually put some organization to those thoughts, those emotions, all those things you need to process. Um, you're not going to find a lot of healing and, and you're going to find a lot tougher, but that's where therapy gives you that space to bring that organization to your thoughts, feelings, emotions, um, where they can, you can start making sense of things and you can do it in the form of also obviously journaling too, as part of therapy that I'll have you do. So as you know, I, 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 I'm a big supporter of it. Mm-hmm. Um, Timothy, I'm so sorry. I, I personally am running low on time. I don't want to cut off this conversation. We no, might you're good, to, you're good. It might eventually need to do a part two because I, I love talking to you, but I have a couple of final questions before I, I have to go. Um, but mm-hmm. You've had such a journey. Um, you've encountered this Italian family that housed you. You were had your birth parents, your adopted parents. You've had your life coach slash therapist that you were talking about earlier. I think, you know, especially in your experiences, but for everyone, we have the definition of family evolves over time. So I, I just like to ask you, you know, like how how do you define family, and what's who, what do you consider? family in, in your life? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, 
think I define family. I define family by the people that you feel safest going to and know that they'll be there for you mm-hmm. when you need them most. Um, and sometimes that's not your blood family. Sometimes that's not your family that you've been adopted to. Um, sometimes in my case, in my experience, it's been really, really close friends. And I've met plenty of, plenty of people so far in my life and I've made plenty of connections with friends, but to the ones that I actually call family, it's very rare. It's, it's very rare. Um, you know, it, I would say, I would say quality over quantity at the end of the day, but mm-hmm. I found that my closest family, uh, has been friends. And, um, of course my younger brothers and sisters, like, Hey, we were in this, we were in this shitty bandwagon together. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the bandwagon kind of imploded and then we all went off and to our different states after we graduated and now we're just coming back together and uh hopefully not building another shitty bandwagon but building a nice yacht where we all can be comfortable <laughs> and, and live yeah. a very happy life yeah, yeah. but uh yeah that's what i would say is like you know it's it's i found that the closest people that i feel comfortable to opening up to and just feeling like they really got my back are just my my closest friends and some friends that i've just met in the past year and a lot of them, I know we didn't really get to, we might have to do part two, Matthew, but uh, <laughs> I didn't even really get to talk more about like my life here in LA and, right. and actually getting connected the Filipino community. Yes. But the, it's been a heaven sent, uh, heaven sent like being connected to the Filipino community here because I actually feel like, oh my God, there's, I'm feeling one with my culture and feeling one with identity, like it's mm-hmm. piecing together more and more spend more time with them and uh, a lot of them have become family to me. Uh, the ones that just took me in just right. Just whitewashed Filipino Asian dude that came from small town, Pennsylvania and come here to a, a wild place like LA. And I will say this, there's a good handful of them that I definitely have my back and they check in on me regularly. And it's, um, yeah, it's really endearing to be honest. For sure. So, because I, I'm pretty confident I wanted, I'm going to do a part two with you. I, I'm not going to ask you yet if there's anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up because I'll ask you that in the part two, I think. Um, if that's cool with you. Because I, 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 yeah, I want to say... I, okay. I, number one, I just want to say I'm, I'm honored that you reached out to me. This is my first time coming out talk, talking my story, uh, talking about my story on a public forum like this. And um, yeah, I'm grateful for the opportunity you've given me here. Um, and I hope it turns out, I hope it turned out well. I know we'll have to see what we play it back. I, I'm worried that I went on too many side tangents, but, um, yeah, I don't really have any other comment. I felt like I've said so much and I'm looking forward to uh, part two. All right. I, I, I usually have some, some quick fire fun questions, but the only one I really want to ask, cause I'll probably ask them in the part two is cause I, I, I know there's going to be more, but what would the title of your autobiography be? Ooh, um, oh gosh, I was just thinking something similar uh, about this, it's like uh, like a month ago, um, I was talking to the TV exec out here in LA and possibly talking about turning my story into a piece that you'd watch, like whether it be a TV show or a movie, but 
because I don't think there's too many like great adoptee stories, especially transracial yeah. adoptee stories out there. It's such a niche. Yeah. I would probably call it. No, oh, that's that's so tough. Um, I don't know. I was gonna say it's something to do with a fight. Me and fighting. Hey, we. What's we'll, it called? I'll hear. Oh, so I'll hear. I don't. I don't <laughs> we'll get that title in the second. I don't know. I can't. I can't even. Get, I can't even give you. I, I'm. All, I'm all thought out. Like I'm. I don't know. Adopted. Okay. That would be the name. I don't. Hey, if you change it, we'll adopt the part. I got it. I got it. Okay. Okay. I got it. Adoption. It's not one word, but it's perfect. Adoption and adaption. Hmm. I really like that. You need to remember that one for when you do put out the book. Because you're going to have yeah. one, I think. You'll have one. All right, bro. Maybe we'll I see need to hear day. more. Uh, right. I want to talk more. It's been great to talk to you here. It was great to talk to you beforehand. I look forward to talking to you again, man. It's it, You have such a great story, and uh, I really appreciate your time. Of course. Thank you for your time, Matthew. We'll talk soon. Have a good one. Yeah. Thank you again to Timothy for joining me on the podcast to discuss his mental health journey, the twists and turns of his upbringing, how he got to where he is now, and I, I know we barely got to talk to him, barely got to talk about, and I know we barely got to talk about where he is now, which is why I think we'll need to do a part two with Timothy. But I hope you enjoyed it. I really enjoyed talking to him and getting to hear more about him and. You know, I didn't really know him going into this episode. I knew a little bit about his background, but I know I don't know the guy um, personally yet, but I, I'm really looking forward to more conversations with him. So uh, with that said, if you enjoy this episode, you can give us... With that said, if you enjoy this episode, you can subscribe to our show for our episodes that release every other Tuesday. Give us a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform. If you would like to help our podcast grow... You can do so with a donation to the link at the bottom of the episode description. To hear more about Changing Tides, follow us on Instagram at LTSC underscore Changing Tides or check out our website, thechangingtides.org. Let's continue to change the tide on mental health. Yeah. Yeah.